All right, welcome back to uh, this week's podcast. Uh, this is Tommy Williams. I'm here again with Jack Levison from Perkins School of Theology at SMU in Dallas. Uh, Jack's uh, spending some time in Houston with me, which is great. Uh, good old humid, uh, hot Houston. Been it wasn't okay, so bad today. I walked from the hotel. It wasn't bad. Yeah, I think the rain kind of cooled stuff off, which was nice. Beautiful um, day here in Houston. Yeah, so um, Jack's had a good omelet in Houston, which is great. And uh, uh, so uh, we're going to jump back into our, our study around the book of Genesis. Uh, this summer, we're spending uh, what we call summer together, and that is wherever you are, wherever you may be this summer, that you might have an opportunity to to listen in and engage in a Bible study discussion with us over the book of Genesis. So the last few weeks, uh, we've been walking through other stories in the early part of Genesis, uh, just as we're having them in Sunday worship, and uh, we've been exploring lots of themes. Uh, um, And I think you'll hear some of those themes recapped a little bit in some of our conversation today. Um, uh, So we've talked about the theme of threat and promise um, early on in Genesis, threat and and God's promises and the threats to those promises. Uh, We've talked about family uh, drama, all right, and uh, relationships and um, faithfulness to 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 the promises of God. and um, how that's lived out in, in the early community. Um, so today we're, uh, we're picking up on a discussion out of Genesis 25 uh, that begins in verse 19. Of course, it's begun long before this uh, as, uh, as now Isaac and Rebecca. If we pick up from last week, Jack, Isaac and Rebecca mm-hmm. um, have gotten married now. And, um, and so this passage this week in Genesis 25, 19 picks up on uh, they're becoming uh, married at a little bit of an older age and, and uh, their desire to have children. Yeah, and again, reminding that uh, Genesis 1, that beautiful poem of creation with the seven days, ends on day six with what's both a commandment and a promise, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And basically, the book of Genesis is about are they going to be fruitful? Are they going to multiply? Are they going to fill the earth? And you begin to see in it, God's time is very different. These people all seem to stretch the bounds, right, of physical ability. These women get old. These men get old. They laugh when they're told. And yet, often too late or almost too late, they're fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So, you know, here again in 19 of chapter 25, what are we talking about? It sounds boring to us. These are the descendants of Isaac, or these are the descendants of, you know, these genealogies are like, oh, no. Right, we all have that person in our family who's the genealogy person, we right? Do. <laughs> so. That's right, the heavy glasses. Right. But if your whole program is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, then everybody who contributes is important. And everybody who detracts is significant. So even though sometimes it's like, oh, no, we're into the genealogy stuff, remember that if, if the most important thing is survival, then everybody counts. I, I, I think it'd be great if the church, we felt that kind of urgency mm-hmm. so that everybody counted. Yes. And every detraction was understood to take away from our core mission. Yeah. Um, but we're not in the church right now. We're very much embroiled in family life uh, back in Genesis. Yeah. But the, I think sometimes the lessons uh, are there. Absolutely, they're there. So if, if that's the important part of the narrative here, then how come there are so many threats along the way, so many challenges to the 
commandment to be fruitful and multiply. I mean, why, what's important about these continual examples of threats to that command? The simple answer is that's life, that we all have mission, we all have purpose, we're all given vision and tasks, and we always seem to get distracted. And there always seem to be obstacles. You know, was it St. I don't know, St. John of the Cross, I think. Well, Priscilla had a spiritual director called Jane Kuntz, wonderful woman. Um, who, Your wife, Priscilla. Yes, I'm sorry, my wife, Priscilla, when we lived in Chicago, had this wonderful spiritual direction director who lost her young husband in a, a, a flying accident in, Korea, in the Korean War and then remarried and had all sorts of difficulties. And Jane, out of tremendous difficulties, uh, never had a biological child of their own, um, really learned to be a person of faith. And Jane would always say to Priscilla and me, when in consolation, remember desolation. When in desolation, remember consolation. That's the book of Genesis. Consolation and desolation flip like a switch. And sometimes they're both together. And there's consolation in a birth of a child, but there's also desolation in the, pro the possibilities and that things will not go right and, the, and in the fragility of life. So whereas we may try to make things more positive sometimes, we want to project this image of success, the book of Genesis will not allow it. And so anything from uh, going back to Abraham in Genesis 22, Anything from not having a well for water. If you read through Genesis, I, as I was reading through it for this, there is so much on wells. They're constantly naming places because it has water. Everything from finding a well to what do I do with my son if God has called me to a loyalty beyond my son. Um, those are put right together, and I think they're equally a threat to God's promise to be fruitful and multiply. Whether you're walking up with Isaac next to you, the two of them together to Mount Moriah, or whether you're trying to get these stupid servants of Abimelech um, to fess up and say, yeah, we stole your well. Both of them have to do with survival. So I think Genesis brings the two together, the very practical and the highly theological, brings them right together. And I think that's why Genesis is full of threat, because life is full of life. threat. Yeah, and life is, I appreciate what you're saying about consolation and desolation. And usually we want to think about life in a linear fashion yes. where we're experiencing either one thing or the other. The truth is those, those kinds of things accompany each other all across our lives, right? Consolation and desolation. Desolation is nipping at our heels in consolation. Priscilla and I feel we're in a time of consolation, and we know. We know how fragile that is, that uh, desolation is nipping at our heels. And at times of desolation, there has been, maybe not at the moment, consolation, or maybe at the moment. And I think Genesis gives us that. It's hard to read any of these stories. Sometimes you'll go from one story to the next, and you'll say, what are the, how are these related? Mm -hmm. But if you think of them in terms of consolation, desolation, survival, then finding a well is just as important as figuring out a way not to sacrifice your son on, on Mount Moriah because both will cut off the line of being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth. Yeah.
So that commandment picks up then with Isaac. We talked last week about Isaac really is a, more of a passive character in the story. Rebecca is the initiator, the sharp uh, one who yeah. is really attuned to the story. And, and here that, that picks up again. Rebecca is a prime you know, character. She's, um, uh, she's in chapter 25 um, after, after Isaac's prayers and her prayers. Um, uh, God answers their prayer as they experience it and and she's holding a son and actually finds out she's holding two of them. Yeah. Uh, the big surprise uh, that some of you have uh, experienced uh, that she's got twins. She's got twins coming. Um, even in verse 22, the children struggle together within her and she says, if it is to be this way, why do I live? Twins, something you and I know nothing about. Nothing um, about, but, uh, yes. But she went to inquire of the Lord and the Lord spoke back to her text says so by the way this word struggle i'm just looking it up now in my little yeah. hebrew dictionary it's an interesting word the only time it means struggled together is in this verse but it has a lot more connotation it has the notion of mistreat or oppress it's more often this verb means mistreat or oppress or it means to bend snap or be broken or shatter or smash so struggle together may be a little bit too gentle a word, which of course is perfect, isn't it? Because Jacob and Esau, they won't just strike, they're not just wrestling with each other. They're, they're at an all out, um, Jacob especially, tries to shatter Esau, take away everything that makes him firstborn. Yeah, that yeah. starts in the womb, and, and, and that clash womb. is some of what plays out over the ne over yeah. the rest of the of the book uh, of yeah. Genesis. So yeah, well that's interesting. Yeah, so it's a more it's a more severe word. Yeah, it can mean shatter, smash, yeah. break. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a more severe word than just struggle together. So in verse twenty three, there of chapter twenty five, um, the Lord's response to her as she is pregnant with twins in pain. Um, the Lord is maybe speaking into the reason for that struggle or one of these other ways of understanding it. Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples born of you shall be divided, one stronger than the other. The elder shall serve the younger. What's, what do we say about that? We just talked a few weeks ago about um, Isaac and Ishmael and the two nations that were promised to the both of them. Um, and now we have, or do we have, something of a parallel here. Esau and Jacob, two nations. Um, but in this case, there, in, in this case, there certainly is a, I don't know, ranking's not the right word, but uh, the elder shall serve the younger. Um, yeah, I was just reading today, this morning, over my omelet with yeah. avocado, um, about uh, Judah and... Tamar. We'll get to that later in the podcast, later in the summer. Uh, but he has two children, Zerah, well, Tamar has two children, Zerah and Perez. And there's an interesting story that I can't remember which one. The first one sticks his hand out and the midwife puts a, a cord on it to mark it as the firstborn. But then it pulls its hand back and the other baby comes out. And as I was thinking about that, I God, thought one of the really interesting things in Genesis that makes it so confusing is progenitor, who's the firstborn. I mean, 
in the ideal world, you know who the firstborn is, you know who has inheritance rights, you know who's in charge. But in Genesis, which is the real world, not the ideal world, it's not all that clear who the firstborn is and whether the firstborn should have the rights of progenitor and inheritance and that sort of thing. So this is another story where the elder will serve the younger, so progenitor and rights of inheritance will get turned around, right. just as with Perez and what was the other one? Tamar. No, no, yeah, the, the two boys of Tamar and Judah are Perez and which are they? Zerah. Zerah. Uh, puts his hand out, brings it back in. Who, who's the firstborn? Sort of similarly, you have with Cain and Abel very early on, not so much a question of firstborn, but of brother struggle. So Cain kills Abel. Cain is a keeper of animals. Abel is a farmer. You have these two cultures struggling with each other, right? Right. Then in this story, Esau and Jacob, what you really have is two cultures struggling with each other. What does Esau do for a living? Yeah, he's the hunter. He's, he's the, the hunter. He's the outdoors guy. And what does Jacob do for a living? Yeah, yeah. He cooks in the tent. That's right. So it's not just that they're brothers. Right. And it's not just that they're different nations. It's that they are different cultures. Cain, Abel. Isaac, Ishmael. Jacob, Esau. And this is what we struggle with nowadays, from travel bans to opposition to travel bans to pro-travel bans to refugees to opposition to refugee resettlement. It's essentially culture wars. We don't trust other cultures. Whether we should or not is not the issue. I mean, Genesis does not always take sides. So you think with Isaac and Ishmael, right? Right. You think Genesis is going to take Isaac's side, which it does. Abraham's lineage gets traced through Isaac. But then when you go through the genealogies of Ishmael, a big genealogy, and there are 12 princes come out of Ishmael. So even though the Bible sides with Isaac, it doesn't side against Ishmael. Interesting. Even though the Bible will side with Jacob. It doesn't side against, against Esau. Esau. And we need to develop that. Taking sides doesn't mean one side as opposed to the other. You can prefer one culture. You could prefer one nation. That doesn't mean you have to deplore and hate other cultures and other nations. Right. And Genesis is in the thick of all that. And if we take our clue from the Bible, you don't have to denigrate and hate one culture because you're in another. And I think we have something to learn there. Absolutely. I think we have something to learn there. It really goes back to what we were talking about last week and that the story just has to be read slowly and taken mm -hmm. in uh, rather than trying to uh, get a snippet out, moralize the snippet, and move on to the next piece, right? Exactly. Right. So this is really helpful this summer, Jack, to walk through Genesis as story and just sort of slow drink this thing together. 
20 minutes by 20 minutes podcast yeah. by podcast and this is helping me it's really. helping me I've been reading more slowly as I'm looking as I'm looking for things to talk about <laughs> I mean man I gotta someone see the, might want to hear yeah. well I see uh, yeah I see the arc though I mean so the arc of yeah. where this uh, this story heads but but just to just to take it in slowly is really really uh, really really crucial uh, you really have a difference too in vocation in a way uh, yes. so Esau has a particular vocation here uh, he's the hunter he's the one who's gathering and and, and skilled with the bow um, and has this, that sort of stereotype and then you got Jacob who has a very particular vocation uh, who is cooking and, and really where our story takes us later in chapter 25 is that uh, Esau, uh, you know, Jacob was a quiet man living in the tents Esau was a man of the field um, and, and it's Jacob that's cooking the stew and Esau comes in when he's famished when they first have this little uh, this little yeah. struggle and it seems to me that uh, this is where the clash happens when one needs the other right so I wonder what that is, uh, our conversation about the culture. Uh, one needs the other. They eventually intersect together. It's not possible in their cases to, to uh, only live parallel lives. The twain does meet. One needs the other. Um, and how they work that out here. And they, don't. They, they don't work it out very <laughs> profitably, but they need each other. You're absolutely right. You know, where does Jacob get the game from? Well, presumably Esau. At Esau doesn't know how to cook the game. Right. He needs Jacob. Yeah. Uh, I think what's real, I hadn't thought about this before, but it's really interesting as I lay this text out in front of me. In verse 26, they're born. Jacob and Esau are born. Right. And then it moves immediately to their adulthood. We don't know anything about their childhood. We don't know if they played together, if they got together. This is the art of reticence in the Bible. No interest in what happened is like what drives us nuts about Jesus. We don't right. know anything about his childhood. It drives us nuts. Right. So we turn to the Gnostic Gospels, which have Gospel of Thomas that has stories of Jesus' childhood, because we want those stories. And here again, there, there's just no interest in this, and it goes immediately from the struggle or the clash in the womb to the clash in the tent. Um, by the way, I, I looked up this word yesterday. Jacob was a quiet man. Yeah. And that word really means blameless or perfect. It really doesn't tend elsewhere when that word Tom is used, the Hebrew word, it tends to be blameless, huh. perfect. Okay. And we're not talking about he was, he was introverted, right? Not, <laughs> not introverted. And I, you know, you think of, you know, Burley Esau out there, her hunting, and Jacob quietly putting on the apron and cooking. It doesn't mean that. There's something else going on here. And we know that Jacob isn't perfect because in the very next story, he's going to do something really ruthless. Mm -hmm. But the author is setting it up in such a way that Esau is described as a hunter and Jacob is described as really blameless. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think another thing, and I don't know, Tommy, maybe you have some insight. You've probably preached on these texts, and I have not. Isaac loved Esau because he was fond of game, which is interesting. Kind of a little selfish reason to love your son. I loved, you know, I loved Jeremy because I wanted to be able to go to baseball games. You know, that's a pretty cheap reason to love my son. Or, you know, I loved him because... He works on cars. I love my son because he details cars and it keeps us a car clean. That's a pretty cheap reason. Right. So Isaac doesn't come across looking well, but what's interesting is there's no reason for Rebecca's loving Jacob. 
And I don't know why that's not there, why there isn't the parallel. Isaac loved Esau because he was fond of game. Rebecca loved Jacob. And that's it. I mean, <laughs> that's that's it. it. Well, right, right. I mean, yeah, isn't that well, we love because we love, right? Like the best love. version of love is, is we love because one is, right? When right. We, uh, yeah. Not because of what they can do for us, uh, and maybe that's uh, maybe Isaac. He loved uh, um, Esau because he's fond of games. I can identify with Esau. Uh, Isaac yeah. is like Esau, right? And I can identify with him because I'm fond of game, right? And we, you know, yeah. people do that. They identify with people who um, who who love similar things, um, but maybe that keeps us or prevents us from learning how to love just cause. Uh, just love to love for yeah. love's sake, right? So, for whatever reason here, it's yeah. but Rebecca loved Jacob. Period. period. Which yeah. I think is odd, given the given the way it's framed yeah. in verse twenty-eight. So they're in the tent. Uh, Jacob has presumably uh, cooked with the stuff that Esau has hunted, but Jacob's done the cooking. Esau comes in. He's famished. Yeah. Hungry. And that word can mean exhausted. He's just exhausted. Drained. It can mean famished, and it can also no mean energy. just energy. Yeah. He's been out hunting. So he's completely dependent now uh, for nourishment, to be restored, to give an energy again, by his brother, his very different brother, who he's clashed with. Um, from the womb. From the womb, from the beginning. And, uh, and so Jacob but uses this as an opportunity to take advantage of his brother. Yeah. It's really awful. It really is ruthless, as you said it's a minute ruthless. ago. It's ruthless. Yeah, yeah it's, I don't know how this is a perfect man, but... Yeah. It's ruthless. Yeah, and... So it's transactional here, right? It's, uh, okay, Oh yeah. all right, I can do this, but <laughs> there's the big conjunction, mm -hmm. you know, sell me your birthright, right? Mm -hmm. And taking advantage of brother when he's in the kind of desperate state he is. Um, so he, it's a transaction here. They have a transactional yeah. relationship, not a loving, well, it yeah. doesn't appear like a loving relationship, but a transactional relationship. There, and, and again, I don't want to stretch this too much into family dynamics because this is really about two nations in your womb. This is about cultures. This is about nations. You read these stories, they represent different modes of being that tend to clash with one another, the hunters and the Bedouins living in their tents. These are different kinds of... I mean, a hunter has to be presumably somewhat sedentary. They, they go out and they hunt and they come back and they hunt and they come back season by season. Yeah. Bedouins live in tents. So you have different cultures here. But I do think there's something about family life here that as a parent, you always want children to get along. Yeah. You always see what they don't see when they're competing with each other and they want things absolutely fair or they want something the other has. And, and again, I think for a family that's dysfunctional, which is about 99% of us, <laughs> uh, these are good stories to read. Yeah. And read together. Well, and I like the, yeah, and read together with others. And I like the idea of thinking on the plane and keeping on the plane of nation and culture and family too. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's what these stories are so resonant. They can go anywhere from national, they, they can go anywhere from, you know, Syria and the United States to different cultures, the rural and the urban in the United States, which we see as a major divide, um, uh, sure. racial, gender, all the way to families. Sure. Yeah. Well, this conversation will continue, Jack. Um, thanks so much. Hey, great. This is super.